a Dixie cup, <laughs> and we can work it out that way. Hey, welcome to worship, Emmanuel. Um, this has been a great um, morning already of worship, and it's just going to get better. We're going to talk about money. <laughs> Some of you are like, what? We just went downhill. No, no, no. We're in a series called Captivated with Jesus. Worship him, be like him. And so over the last several weeks and moving into the fall, every Sunday we're talking about Jesus, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what other people said about Jesus and what other people did about Jesus. And so every single week, Jesus is the main focus. Are you captivated with Jesus? Are you beguiled? Are you enthralled? Is Jesus your go-to person when life freaks you out, when you're depressed, when you're discouraged, when you're anxious, when you're stressed out, when you're confused, when you're like, my life isn't working out the way I thought it was going to work out? Is Jesus your go-to person? And here's the question. If he isn't, why? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship, and Jesus is worthy of our praise. And when we put Jesus at the center of our life, Things change, and he has a way of reorienting our life in every season of our life. And so this morning, to help us talk about what people who are captivated with Jesus, what do they do with their money? I couldn't think of anybody better than Tom Skinner to help us with this topic. And so over the next few moments, I'm just going to be, Tom and I are kind of going back and forth. And um, he's going to share a little bit of his backstory in just a moment. But are you captivated with Jesus? And what does that look like in your everyday life when it comes to finances? So would you welcome Tom Skinner? Absolutely. Just a couple details. Tom, how long have you and Marg been attending Emmanuel? Uh, Marg and I started attending here in January of 2015, so we've been here about four and a half years, and it's been a sweet, rich experience for us. You like the pastor? <laughs> I'll love, let me take your microphone. Love his staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I deserve that. Yeah. Okay. Hey, tell us a little bit of your backstory. Like, what have you been doing professionally? Like, how did how did Jesus become more than a name to you? Well, that's a great question, and I really appreciated the way Dave got us started with his testimony about baptism, because that really is where you need to take our, my story back to. Margaret and I got married in 1975, which means we've been married 44 years. I don't know how that happened. But 44 years ago, we got married. I was in the Army band at the time playing trumpet, stationed in New York City, we got married, and we got into a great church, a church that did a wonderful job teaching us about Jesus, and we were captivated. We were captivated by the person of Christ. And even more than that, we were captivated by the body of Christ, his presence here that he has commissioned us to be his presence. We fell in love with Jesus. We fell in love with his church. And in those first years of our marriage, we were baptized. That was a beautiful and important experience in our lives. That's where it got started. Uh, I hadn't finished my undergraduate degree yet while I was in the military. Uh, so my enlistment ended, and I, I, I went to our pastor and asked him for counsel. 
and he suggested a couple of schools that I might want to consider to finishing my undergraduate degree. I selected one of them, Houghton College. I went back to Houghton College in western New York. We're original uh, western New Yorkers. We're from Buffalo. And uh, uh, I took a degree in Bible because we really wanted, I, I, I kind of wanted to catch up, I guess. I grew up in the Christian Science Church. Now, I tell folks, it's neither Christian nor science. So I had a lot of catching up to do. So I went back to and finished a degree in Bible and was pursuing God's call in our lives. Not quite sure what that looked like. I took a position after graduation as an assistant pastor at a Wesleyan church uh, not too far from Buffalo. And uh, uh, we immersed ourselves in that ministry and and loved it. Our first son was born that first year as, as well. And I recognized that if, if this was God's call in my life, I probably needed to do seminary. And to be honest with you, we really didn't have the resources for seminary. We were spent. We were emotionally, financially, and in some ways spiritually spent during that uh, difficult season in our lives, though it was rich in other ways. Uh, the, the college uh, came to me while I was uh, working at the church and uh, invited me to take a position there, and they would cover the cost of my graduate degree, which I ended up doing in educational administration. Now, I fell in love with Christian higher education. I love Jesus' words when he says, a disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And I love the fact that I had the opportunity and I wanted that opportunity for others to be discipled by people whose primary commitment was not to their academic discipline, but their primary commitment was to Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And I worked for Houghton College for nine years, uh, during which time I received a call to move my family here to this area. In 1989, now 30 years ago, I'd been in contact with the folks at Biblical Seminary, and they invited me to come to the seminary to, be, to serve as their vice president. And I did that, and, that's, and I've been involved with the seminary in one capacity or another for now 30 years, though I've also started a consulting practice, and the seminary is one of eight clients that I, that I currently serve. Okay, so in the past 30 years at Biblical, which is now Missio Seminary, they changed their name recently, what has been your primary focus? I've, had, I've worked in three primary areas. I've led the charge for fundraising for the seminary. I've also worked in the area of uh, uh, leadership development and in strategic planning. And that's the kind of work I do with my uh, uh, clients right now. So what you're saying is you work with a lot of Christians and Christian institutions over the last uh, 30 years regarding their finances. So here's the big question. Why is it really hard and awkward to talk about money with Christians. Because I guarantee you, when I announced what the topic was, there's at least half of the room just went, oh, man, I should have gone to some other church this morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, like half of you may be struggling with being checked out at this moment. So why, why is that? Why is it hard to talk about That's it? That's a great question, and it's an important question. Uh, some of you who have hair closer in color to my hair may remember a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. Does that name resonate with you? Well, I remember him on the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, he, he came out, he was doing this sketch. It, it was his pastor on Stewardship Sunday. And it was one of these congregations where the congregation spoke back to you. Uh, he got up to preach, he'd say, the pastor would. 
And he'd look out over the congregation and say, if a church is going to walk, it first has to crawl. And the congregation would respond, let it crawl, Rev, let it crawl. If a church is going to run, it first has to walk. Let it walk, Rev, let it walk. If a church is really going to get moving, its people got to give. Let it crawl, Rev, let it crawl. (laughs) And that's humorous because we know it is a difficult subject to talk about. So let's get right into it. Why is money important to God? You know, I'd like to take you back to the first fundraising campaign in human history. It took place in Exodus chapter 25. Moses has been commissioned with a challenge of building a tabernacle. And the first thing that God does is he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, in verse 1 of chapter 25, he says, Moses, go tell the people of Israel to make an offering. And I have to ask myself the question, why did God choose to do it that way? Was it because he needed the money from the people of Israel? Well, of course not. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He didn't need the money. But he was after something more important than their money. He was pursuing their hearts. He longed for their hearts. He longed for them to be captivated with him, not captivated by their money. So he says, go tell the people of Israel to make an offering. He was less concerned about a building and more concerned about a body. He wanted to call forth a people who would be his people, a people for whom he would be their God and a people through whom he would undo all the damage that was done in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. He was calling forth a people who would be his people that he would work through to reconcile the world to himself. That's why it's important. God was not dependent on the money from the people of Israel, but he longed for their hearts. And he knew implicitly what Jesus says explicitly, where your treasure, that's where your heart is also. That's why it's important to God. So there's this bond between faith and finance. I like to describe it as an inextricable link between faith and finances because it's always begging the question, where do you put your trust? You remember the first commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And God, and money is not evil. The material world is not evil. God created it, and he said it was good. But he understands that there's a seductive quality to it. And God doesn't want any other God before us. And there is this collision course between the God of creation and the one who's become the God of mammon. And he's asking you, where are you going to put your trust? Are you pursuing the God of creation? Or are you allowing the God of mammon to pull your attention away, to distract you, to keep you from being captivated by me? That's the question God's asking. In your work with um, people and institutions through the years, what have you discovered about ways that 
people, Christians, handle money? Well, it's interesting. There are really only five things that you can do with money. Uh, You can spend it, uh, which we do, and we overspend it. So the next, you can also uh, pay debt for money that you've spent that you shouldn't have spent. You can pay your taxes. And uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 is very specific about our responsibility. He says, pay your taxes. Uh, Fourth, you can save or invest it. And lastly, you can give it. That's about all that we can do with the money that we have. Okay, so in your experience, how do Christians handle money in terms of priorities? Because if there's only five ways, right? Only five ways you can handle money. There's up on the screen, I believe, yep. Um, How does that work out priority-wise? Well, the way we have it on the screen truthfully, is the way most people handle their finances, which is why lots of us get ourselves in trouble, and we don't really accomplish as much as we could if we were more intentional about it. So we spend it. Most of us uh, who are employees have payroll taxes taken out of our paycheck, so that's a non-negotiable. And then we get to the debt, and then if there's anything left over, we might save a little bit, And then if there's anything left over after that, we may give a little bit. And what happens is we come to the end of the month and there's too much month at the end of the money. That's the problem. And we're not very intentional about it. We need to think, rethink about how we're handling our money. I think the the scriptures calls us to make that last priority for most of us our first priority and that we make that the first decision we make. In fact, Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, give of your first fruits. Does the Bible have any foundational principles about money that may apply to all Christians? I think it does. I think the Bible is loaded with foundational principles. In fact, if you read through the New Testament and look at Jesus' teachings, you'll find that more than two-thirds of all of his parables have to do with money or possessions. But very briefly, there are three passages that I'd like to pull out really quickly. The first one I think is very important. It's Psalm 24.1 that reminds us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. The first thing we need to remember is it's all God's. This beautiful sanctuary that we're in, it's God's. All that we own, all that we possess, all that we have, it's his. And in the New Testament, we are are taught that we are entrusted with those resources. And we are to be good stewards of those resources. So the first thing we need to know is that it's all his. We've just been entrusted with a little bit of it. The second, I had mentioned about the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25. Well, in 1 Chronicles, David is now commissioned with building the temple. And he's at the end of this extraordinary campaign. And the people have given generously. And he prays this beautiful prayer. Who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? All things come from thee, O Lord, unto your hand. From your hand it has come to us. And so David reminds us 
that giving is a privilege and, and, and it's a reminder of God's generosity to us. And it's a statement that we believe what Jesus says when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 5 has a very practical verse. It says, if you love money, you'll never have enough. Now, that works on both sides of the equation. If you're hoarding and accumulating money, your focus is in the wrong place. On the other hand, if you're desperate for money and all you can think of is money, 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 that becomes your first love. You'll never have enough, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. What are the qualities of people? who you would consider to be generous? What do generous people look like? I've worked with uh, men and women. Sometimes they have given millions of dollars, and I've been in other people's homes where I've known that that $50 gift they were making was a great act of sacrifice. There are two passages of Scripture that remind me of a couple of important things. Number one... Jesus pays attention, and he honors a worshiping heart. And when our giving is an act of worship, that warms the heart of Jesus. I see that in Luke chapter 21. A widow gives two copper coins. Now the Pharisees, they were parading around in their beautiful outfits and making a big to-do about all they were giving, she drops in two copper coins. And Jesus takes note of it and reminds the people that he's speaking with that she has outgiven every single person that was present that day. He honored her worshipful heart. I think that's really an important reminder. God loves a worshipful heart. And he makes a big deal about it. Wasn't, wasn't shy about celebrating this extraordinary act of this, of this woman. Now, on the other hand, I love the, to, to that passage in John chapter 12. You've got three people present. You've got Mary, the brother of Lazarus. You've got Jesus. You've got Judas and the other apostles. In this passage... They are celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus has just raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead, and it's a celebration. You can imagine the kind of worshipful response Mary would have to that extraordinary event in her and her brother's life. And she takes a nard of ointment. She takes some perfume, and it wasn't just any ordinary perfume. John tells us it was worth a year's wages. And in an extravagant act of worship, she takes that perfume and breaks it over the feet of Jesus. It's a beautiful scene. You have Mary, the sacrificer. But she's not the only one in the room. You've got Judas. Judas, the criticizer. And Judas says, why this waste? That could have been sold and given to the poor. But you have then Jesus the justifier. And he says to Judas and to the others, leave her alone. 
She's done a beautiful thing. And in Matthew's gospel account of that event, Matthew tells us that Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what Mary has done will be spoken of. And then in John 12, John gives us a picture of that event. He says, the fragrance of her gift filled the room. When you ask me what are the qualities of a generous person, whether they're the widows who, who, who've give, the widow who's given two mites, two copper coins, or Mary who's broken the nard of ointment, there's a fragrance that fills the room. And you know it, and you've seen it, and I know it, and I've seen it. There are certain people who live their lives like this, not like this. And their, their lives permeate a fragrance that just fills any room they enter. And all of a sudden, as soon as you see, see them come in, you say, this is going to be a little sweeter. This is going to be a little richer. That's what, I, th- th- that's what I think of when you ask me, what are the qualities? They have a quality of making the room around them sweeter, more fragrant, more beautiful. That's beautiful. I think for many of us, we've never really heard that description before. Hmm. And I really, that begs the question, am I, are, are all of us those kinds of people that we're just, we fill the room and we make it sweeter. And we're not just even talking about finances necessarily, but it's just giving of yourself. What would you say to the following groups of people? Those who are struggling with their finances. What do you say to those in the room right now that are really wrestling with their finances? Just they don't feel like they have enough. Earlier today, we sang about Jesus as the waymaker, as the miracle worker. That's a great reminder. When life is desperate, we have a Savior who is a waymaker and a, and a miracle worker. I was working with a seminary student who was at this point. He was just exhausted of, of, of all of his resources. Nothing left, and his car died. Well, his temptation was to go out and take out a big loan and, 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 and get a car. And we talked about it and we prayed about it and we said, maybe there's another way forward. And I suggested an idea to him that I had received from some reading I had done about the great resources in our region through continuing care retirement communities. Do you know there are beautiful cars in retirement communities never being driven? And sometimes folks have to sell them. I said to him, go to each of the retirement communities in our area, put a card on the table, struggling seminarian needs a good but inexpensive car. Please call. He got a call. And he got a beautiful car at probably a third of what it would have cost him at, uh, uh, at, a, at a dealership. I was thinking about that, and when we were thinking about Jesus, the waymaker, Jesus, the miracle worker, give God a chance to do something special in your life. Now, let me say to you, I had mentioned earlier Proverbs 3, and this is a hard proverb for somebody who's struggling, but God says through the writer of Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything that you produce, then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with wine. In other words, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch after you, but honor the Lord with your first fruits. 
And you say, but Tom, you want me to give 10% to the Lord? I want you to give as much as your faith will allow you to give joyfully, but I want you to make that your first decision. Honor the Lord with your first fruits. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. And humanly speaking, it doesn't make any sense. But before we read Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, we read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And that says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. And suddenly, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 makes a little sense if we first understand Proverbs 3, 5. That would be my counsel to somebody who's struggling this morning. So there's a lot of people who are struggling financially, but there's also a lot of people that are not struggling in any way financially. What, what would you say to people who, you know, they have margin? They're doing pretty well. That's a great question, and it's an important question. I first look at Paul's words to young Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. Their trust should be in God. And then I would remind them of the truthfulness of Psalm 24. It ain't yours. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Your 401k, whose is it? It's God's. Your, your beautiful home that you've paid off, that's God's. All of those resources have been entrusted to you to invest them in ways that honor and please God. Luke chapter 12 reminds us, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. There's a reason why Jesus said that it's more difficult for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of, of heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. There's a great responsibility that you have with the wealth that's been entrusted to you. Take it seriously, take it prayerfully, and uh, seek the Lord in how to be a good steward of what you've been entrusted with. So you have some that are really struggling financially. You have some that are not struggling financially at all. You're doing quite well. What would you say to younger people, whether single or newly married? What advice? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, and Ecclesiastes is a book filled with wisdom. It compares what it means to live life under the sun as compared to living life with an eternal perspective. And if all we have is under the sun, it's all vanity of vanities. It's foolishness. But the writer of Ecclesiastes knows that there's something deeper there. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 says, Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, Life is not pleasant now. Young person, young couple, I would encourage you to take seriously what it means to put the Lord first in all of your finances, to prioritize your finances in a way that honors him, and allow God to work out his will in your life. 
When Margaret and I were newlyweds, we were brand new Christians, newly baptized. Our church was going through a building program, and we were challenged to make a sacrificial gift. Well, it made no sense for us, humanly speaking, to make a sacrificial gift. I still had to go back and finish college. We had extraordinary expenses awaiting us, and, and it just made no sense. But we said yes to God, and I can tell you today, when somebody says you can never outgive the Lord, these 44 years have been a demonstration of that time and time again. Now, we're not wealthy people. We live in a modest home. But I will tell you that God has provided for our needs in ways I never could have imagined. And uh, so I, feel, I believe deeply that God honored that first, that initial commitment we made to give sacrificially. Some people are struggling financially. Some people are doing pretty well financially. You just heard a word of advice to younger people, whether single or married. What would you say to an older person or an older couple who's afraid in retirement? Yeah, we're faced with two concerns as we age, aren't we? The first concern is, will I die too soon? And the second concern is, will I outlive my assets? Will I live too long? And that's a serious concern, especially in this complicated world of healthcare that we live in. I still think, however, God has called us to live not by fear, but by faith. And in fact, Paul's words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. We need to approach this last season of our lives with a, with a, with, as a life uh, lived in faith, not in fear. And we need to model that for the next generation to come. I've often thought about an extraordinary story told in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17. And if I could unpack that whole chapter, I'd take the time to do it. It's really worth your reading. But there's a drought in the land of Israel, and the man of God, Elijah the prophet, needs to be cared for. And God sends him to the brook Cherith, where he cares for them for a time, cares for him there for a time. But, the, but the, 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 the land dries out. There's a drought that has even affected that area. And so God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Zarephath is near Sidon. It's away from where the people of God reside. But God says, in Zarephath, you're going to find a widow and ask her to care for you. So Elijah did what God told him to do. He found the widow in Zarephath, and he sees her out, and he says to her, prepare some bread for me. And she says, as surely as I live, as surely as, the, as God lives, I don't have a slice of bread in my house to give to you. In fact, I'm out here just gathering a few sticks and I'm going to take what little oil I have and what little flour I have and I'm going to bake a, a cake for my, my son and myself and then we're going to die. And Elijah audaciously says to this woman, Prepare a cake first for the man of God and then prepare what's left over for you and your son. 
Mark, I've done fundraising for 40 years. I've never asked somebody for their last meal. (laughs) And this woman is now faced with a question. A question all of us really ought to ask. Am I going to entrust myself to the resources around me that I can see? Or am I willing to entrust myself to the resources of the God of Elijah? And you know how that story ends, don't you? The olive oil and the flour did not fail. I'm challenged to live a life of faith where I take steps of faith, tangible steps of faith, because it's my opportunity to say, I'm entrusting my future to the resources of the God of Elijah. Now, I temper that counsel with Paul's admonition to Timothy again, who says the one who does not provide for his household is worse than an unbeliever. I think we have a responsibility to provide for our families. But I also think that when given the opportunity, we need to take steps of faith and say, I'm among those who seek first the kingdom of God. And I'm going to entrust all that other stuff to the the resources of the God of Elijah. Last question. One final word of advice to us. If you could say anything to us about finances, living the Christian life, what would it be? You know, a wise man once told me that You make a living by what you earn, but you build a life by what you give. Let's live with eternity in mind. Let's live with the long view. Let's live with the question before us, what kind of legacy do I want to live? Do I want to live a life of faithfulness or do I want to live a life of fear? Every time you put... God's work, the person of God, the people of God before yourself, you are making a statement of what's most important to you. My counsel to you is to live intentionally, prioritize your what's been entrusted to you in a way that is honoring to God, and allow God to do something special in and through your life. Be a part of that people who say, God, you are my God. And God says to you, you are my people. And God is then working out his will through those who have entrusted themselves to him, to those who have said yes to God, to those whose lives have been uh, so captivated by what Jesus has done. So the reason why I asked Tom to help us out this morning is because I know he and his wife well enough to know that these are two believers who are captivated with Jesus Christ. And he has spent his entire entire professional career talking to people and organizations about finances and what that looks like. But 
I think you heard something else. Actually, this hasn't even been a topic of finances. This has been something completely different. This is about matters of the heart. And we could have picked any other topic, but we would have ended up right here about seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Are you captivated with Jesus? If not, why not? Because he's on your side. And he wants to see the kingdom of God built in your own life. Does that make sense to you? Would you like to express your appreciation to Tom this morning? Thanks, brother. Would you stand, please? There's got to be somebody here who needs to give a little silent prayer to the Lord that says, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my resources. I'm releasing myself to you. Use me in any way you see fit. Jesus, we've just said it. Now we pray it. We surrender our lives to you. In every realm, our relationships, and like we talked about just a moment ago, our finances. Because when we say our finances, actually, that's even a wrong statement. It's your finances. And so, God, help us to be good stewards. May there be some here today who receive the challenge to seek first the kingdom of God above all else. For your glory, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Hey, you guys are terrific. Love you. Have a great rest of the day. Go Eagles.